Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and on today I'm joined with uh, Michael. Good morning, everyone. And we have a special guest today, Kuba. Kuba, can you uh, say hi and introduce yourself? Hey guys, yeah, uh, my name's Kuba, and uh, I live around the Toronto area in Canada. Uh, I work for a company called The Score, and uh, I've been working with Elixir for probably the past year, year and a half. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Awesome. So you said the name of the company was The Score? Yeah, The Score. Um, so The Score being like the scoreboard in sports. Um, we are like a digital media company in the sports space. Um, so we have like all sorts of sports content that we write in-house, um, as well as our flagship app called The Score. Like nice. um, scoring stats and news and all that kind of stuff. Awesome. Well, that's cool. Uh, and so uh, we were also talking on the pre-show about your uh, living in Toronto, which maybe we'll touch on a little bit. But I first want to make sure uh, we talk about like why we brought you on. Because uh, I saw this blog post that you wrote on uh, a, a different way of using params. Uh, like you call it the params module for Phoenix. And, and uh, I love this approach. And I, I thought this is the this is exactly the kind of thing that I try and talk about and I try and use myself. And I thought this is a great opportunity for us to kind of dig into this topic. And and so I was wondering if you can just kind of introduce kind of what it is you're talking about here and and, and really kind of where did this come from? Like what caused you to to take this approach? Yeah. So um the one liner just to start is um Params modules are uh, a pattern that you can use um, to validate and massage uh, controllers' params. Um, and that, that's basically the one-liner. And so um, the thought behind it, I mean, maybe the backstory I should start with. Um, the score used Ruby and Rails for a very long time. And uh, we started to explore um, using Elixir and Phoenix. Um, so doing so with a bunch of Rails developers, everyone's always looking for some sort of way to map existing concepts, right? From one language and framework to another. Um, so with, uh, with Rails, a common pattern, there are form objects where you can take um, like input of data from forms and whatnot um, to be able to validate those and massage those a bit. Um, and I didn't see anything in Phoenix land to do a similar thing. Um, so I kind of dug around, saw what kind of repos were out there, what kind of posts were out there already um, to be able to validate um, params. And I didn't see anything that was specific for, for what I wanted. 
Um, then actually I came across this one um, repo um, by um, GitHub username Vic. I'm not sure exactly who it is, to be honest. Um, he has this um, repo called um, Params. And it did kind of what um, I was looking for. It did massage and validate Phoenix params, um, but uh, it also introduced a dependency. And actually just reading through the readme, I thought to myself, do we really need a dependency for this? Um, so yeah, going back to params modules themselves, um, you, you uh, basically take the params map that's passed into a controller action. Uh, you hand it off to this one um, params module that would have created and you can use that to perform any sort of validation make sure that um, the necessary params are present um, and even do a little bit of massaging we can get into exactly what that could mean um, and then kind of hand it back so that you could then pass it on to your business logic yeah uh, um, so I, I have to say I love the approach and I loved your discussion point about um, do I do I want to bring in a dependency for this uh, and this is something that uh, I've been finding myself as I get deeper into the Elixir community uh, that gets discussed quite a lot. Um, I also came from the Ruby and Rails community and uh, there was, um, in most teams that I worked on, there wasn't really a discussion around, should we have a dependency for this? <laughs> um, and in the Erlang and Elixir community, it seems to be more prominent for teams to discuss things like, well, how much of the total functionality do we, do we want to use? If we just copy one module from this library, um, is that going to meet our needs or is it likely to change its behavior over time? There's, there's a lot of these discussion points that happen. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious if you have any other heuristics that you personally use for your projects around when you decide to bring on a dependency and when you decide to build something yourself. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Going back to the whole Rails thing, um, with Rails, magic in a way is okay. Um, implicitness, uh, just running with conventions. And so I feel like it's much easier to bring in dependencies in that case. Um, but with Elixir, things are a lot more explicit, um, as we know. So um, I think the heuristic varies between like maybe like um, Rails and Phoenix, let's say. So generally what I look at is, um, how much code is there? How complicated would this be to do ourselves? Um, and so in, in this case, there wasn't a whole lot to it. Um, so that's kind of why I thought, hey, maybe we could just do this without a, without a package itself. Yeah, but in, in terms of heuristics itself, I would say um, the complexity um, of the package itself um, is the main one. Yeah, I, that's an interesting question, like talking about heuristics, because uh, I was thinking about that myself. And I guess one um, yardstick I use is to say, does this, uh, does this implement a standard, like an official standard? Like if it's, you know, there's HTTP that has specific protocols and, or FTP or anything that has like, you know, a specific protocol or standard, those things I definitely am going to reach for a library on. I would not want to build my own unless my, unless my goal is to build a new implementation of a standard. Uh, but you know, then then you start to kind of like, okay, that's on one extreme, and then like then you have the whole other extreme of like this is completely custom to my my business. 
uh, my application. No one else is going to care about this as a library, so I don't even need to publish it. It's just not going to be appropriate for anyone else, perhaps. But yeah, so like, I think it's interesting just the idea of uh, looking at what is the core feature or functionality that we're looking for? What solves this? How do they solve that? And can I just do that myself? As a, just to kind of mentally exercise it, not even to say, okay, well, if I can, I will, but just kind of evaluate, can I do this myself? And then start to weigh that. Right. And then also just to kind of build on that as well, um, introducing a new package um, might introduce a new DSL or something of the sort, um, which if it's documented, um, isn't terrible, but it's still something new that a developer needs to learn and ramp up on. Um, instead, um, using like, for example, this uh, Prams module approach, it's using Ecto, which of course is a package, but it's pretty core to uh, Elixir at this point, and most developers know about it. Uh, so it doesn't require any more ramping up per se, which I think is another kind of benefit of just rolling uh, your own Prams modules. Yeah, I totally I, agree. I, I really like both of your heuristics. Um, there's one other that uh, has sometimes been useful to me to evaluate these situations, and uh, that's which side of this relationship is more likely to change over time. So, for instance, if I'm if I'm using uh, if I'm going to be sending emails via a third-party service, then their implementation or their API seems more likely to change than my usage of it. So I'm probably just going to keep sending emails uh, and I'm, I'm not likely to change a whole lot about what I need from that service, but they might have business reasons for changing or for um, wanting people to start using a new API endpoint or something like that. And in those cases, uh, I really like to get a library because uh, there's going to be an author who is motivated to keep it up to date with uh, with the use case of that service, um, or perhaps introduce additional security fixes, things along those lines. Um, but because I'm unlikely to change my usage of it for my project, then um, then I'll I'd rather have a library. Whereas in this case, I, I think Akuba, the pattern that you're identifying of of something that helps to validate and to um, and to make some changes or to, to add some affordances around the data that you're accepting in, that feels like something where my usage of it will change over time. Maybe my team finds, oh, there's a whole lot of cases where we want these embedded schemas, you know, like uh, we're gonna receive data for several different models all at once. And so we really wanna have a, a convenient pattern around that. Um, but, but then other times, our usage will change. And um, now we really need the ability to automatically uh, emit some telemetry uh, statistics or something like that. And because that feels likely to change within our project, um, I would rather pull that in, I think, and maintain it as a team. That, that's nice. I like that. Just the idea of, uh, because like both of you have kind of touched on this, is that when you bring in a library, you are committing some level of investment to it because you have code now that is tied to it. So if that library becomes, uh, I don't know, goes into unmain unmaintained status, uh, you either have to find a replacement or bring in that functionality, or you have to fork it and maintain and keep it up to date so that you can keep moving forward with newer versions of Elixir or Phoenix or whatever. Right. So, yeah. And, and we've had a similar thing 
um, at the score where we've taken on packages um, that haven't been super maintained, but that we do rely on. Um, so that is another important thing. So one heuristic, like I said, is, is it simple enough to implement ourselves? But then also, is it not so complex that we'd be terrified to take it over ourselves if need be? Yeah, so the activity on it and uh, if, is there an active maintainer? Uh, definitely also super important. Yeah, yeah. And so, so I think that's a, a great way to kind of cap that idea of, of when, is, when do we want to bring in a library and how do we at least frame the thought process? Uh, so I, I do want to jump in a little deeper into what, you've, uh, what you're talking about in building in here because I love the idea of this is something simple it is using primitives that are already available in most Elixir applications. Most Elixir applications are going to be using Ecto. So you're already going to have this. And, and, it, so you're just, and there's not any new DSLs that are being introduced. Any, you know, have no additional cognitive load that someone has to like learn to ramp up on, like you're saying. So let's right. jump in a little bit onto some of the details. Like um, for some, someone who may not be familiar, uh, perhaps they're newer to Elixir, and they have never used an embedded schema. How right. is that? Can you just kind of touch on that and like what is an embedded schema versus like the regular schema that they've already seen and used? Yeah, so um, your, your typical schema with Ecto will be backed by some sort of storage. Really, we're talking about a database table. Um, and then with an embedded schema, you can have that basically um, be like an in-memory store. So it, it's the way I like to think about an embedded schema is that it's like, um, an evolved struct, right? You have like your maps, which are some sort of key value pairs. Um, then you have your uh, struct, which is like atom keys and then some value that has some sort of name associated to it, the module name that is. Um, and you can have like, you can enforce certain keys or whatnot. Um, and then the next step after that is uh, an embedded schema um, where you can actually have validations and whatnot and the power of Acto uh, behind that struct. Um, so, and then of course, so an embedded schema can be that in-memory store, but then it can also be, as the name implies, uh, a schema embedded in another schema. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. How, um, like I might have a, a, a schema that represents a table of users and I may have an embedded schema that is a a piece of that users that might embed another, uh, like a nested data structure that might be serialized as a map or something like that into a field on my uh, users table. Let's say like a profile or something like that. Yeah, or preferences or something. Right, right. Yeah, and uh, I'm not actually promoting that as a way of designing <laughs> software, but, <laughs> but likewise, it's likewise. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, but yeah, so an embedded schema, what I, I, I love that you touched on there is like, it, it brings you all the power of Ecto schemas, which means change sets and you have all the, the normal validators. I can say that this is required. This cannot be null. This, uh, you know, it knows how to, it does casting. So it can cast from a string to an integer. Uh, it does all of those things. And, but it doesn't have to be tied to a database table at all. So what I love about that is then, and which is what you're talking about here is like the idea of a, a Rails kind of form object is saying I have form input or you know, input from the user, but I, it's not tied to a database table and it might actually in some ways map to multiple tables or, or different entities, but 
from this perspective, from the user's perspective, at this point, it's one thing. And, and, but an embedded schema lets you do that and just kind of deal with all the validations all in one place. Right. Yeah. So one of the things that you uh, bring up a point of in this article is, and we have a, a link to the article in the show notes just to make sure people know and can check this out. So you kind of walk us through uh, like a login. Um, can you just kind of explain that? And I, I realize it is not ideal to try and you know, explain code <laughs> audio only. Uh, so I don't expect you to read code out, but uh, you know, it's kind of explain sure. kind of what's going on. And, and what I, in particular, I like is what is, we're talking about a controller here, like a login controller. I like what is not in the controller. So right. let's go ahead and take it. Yeah. Yeah. So just to kind of reiterate that point you mentioned, um, this is on a blog post and I spent a lot of time getting that wording right. <laughs> so yeah, you guys make sure to check that out. Um, so yeah, say you have some kind of um, login endpoint that you can take. Um, say this login endpoint is kind of a more secure one that accepts a username, password, and also security questions. Um, one step that you might want to take is make sure that you have all of the required um, data um, before passing your data along to your business contact, your business logic, like a login context or something. So um, one thing that is commonly done, I think, is um, within the um, create clause or um, whichever function you're using in the controller, you'll pattern match um, the data out of there. So like the username and the password. Um, but it's the, your, your, the amount of the amount of um, enforcement that you can apply uh, in that area kind of stops there. It's just like, are these things here or not? Um, and even at that point, um, if you just say one of them are not here, re respond with a 400, you're not really being specific as to what the issue is. Um, so instead of trying to perform all this validation right inside the controller action, um, you would then, like I mentioned earlier, pass all those params off to uh, a params module where you can do more of like more specific checking. Um, which attribute is missing? Is one attribute too short? Is the number too small? Um, and things like that. Um, and also say um, you would pass your username and password into some login context, um, which might return a user, but then you have a separate context for uh, security, like strong authentication strong authentication where you pass in the security answers uh, and that user, um, you can kind of massage everything ahead of time and then just pass the specific data that's needed to each controller, to, sorry, to each context. Right. And, and, and it's, I encourage people to check out the blog post uh, because like one of the things that is um, most interesting to me is like when you look at that def create of this uh, controller action, uh, it is like, uh, like maybe three, four lines of code. And, and that is the way it should be, right? You know, cause like, uh, having come from rails projects where there is a lot of logic that gets put into the controller, uh, you know, they kind of become fat, they call them fat controllers where there's just a lot of code and logic that's in the controller. And it's for one, it's harder to test there. Uh, you have to do like kind of integration style tests and, and so I, what I love about this is it's just kind of elegant and simple and 
I take the, the data that you've given me and I might send it off to one context to validate this piece. And then like you said, send it, the rest of it off to a different area to validate this piece. So the, con the controller really is doing the job of the controller of just tying together what is the business logic and what needs to happen for this action. And just, I pull that together and everything else lives somewhere else and it can be tested and, and validated somewhere else. And then I just have an integration test to just sit, say, yes, all the pieces are happening in the right order. Right. And also I wanted to note that um, in a very kind of default CRUD, like a basic CRUD app, um, you might already have a schema for this data. Um, say you are creating a new address. This is the example I, I used in the blog post. If you're creating a new address, you might have some kind of post to addresses and where you pass in a directly like a map of data that directly maps to um, an address schema and you have your chain set within that uh, schema module. Um, and, that's, and that's awesome. There's no point in introducing params modules in that case. Um, but in this login example, where you just have kind of uh, disparate pieces of data that you want to pass to different contexts, um, you might not have any sort of uh, schema um, to represent that. And I think that's where these params modules really shine. Uh, it's important to know really that um, they don't apply, apply in every case and really shouldn't be used in like every controller action because then that's just unnecessary buildup of code that's not adding value, right? So um, I think it kind of fills um, a certain use case um, that can be, I think it's something that could be sprinkled in to kind of meet certain uh, use cases more than kind of just uh, using it everywhere per se. Preach. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, I, one, one thing I wanted to point out is um, I really loved as I read through this uh, blog post, it was extremely thoughtful. You kind of upfront talk about um, a use case where if, if your controller looks like this, if your params match very closely to your existing, uh, to your exist existing schema, then you don't need this right? Like you start off with the heuristic for when not to use this new pattern, which I really, really loved. And, mm -hmm. and then also in your summary at the very end, um, you did talk about uh, the Vic params um, dependency, which was an option that you had considered. You also talk about uh, Lucas de Quiroz Alves um, Phoenix strong params, which is another post that goes over a, a similar pattern, but maybe just a little bit more focused on just uh, validating which parameters you accept, especially mm -hmm. in kind of nested structures. I So before anything else, I just wanted to say thank you so much for producing this kind of a blog post. I think these kinds of posts add so much value to the community because they are not just, I learned one new tool and now I want to share it. Um, but it's it's one step beyond that and saying, oh, well, here's here's kind of a couple of different choices that all relate to one another. And depending on what your needs are, uh, you, you might use any one of them. Uh, and also I, I wanted to point out really quickly, thank you so much to Vic, GitHub user Vic, who we don't know very much about, but um, you know, that's also somebody who was thinking about this problem and chose to share their thoughts as code, as executable code, which is an amazing, wonderful thing. Um, where I think we should all be really grateful when people choose to spend their free time making code available to all of us. So um, I'm just really grateful that this is an area where we're starting to find some more nuance in our discussion. We're not just trying to say always use this pattern or, um, or that you always, you know, that everyone should fall into some similar structure. We're just talking about options and trade-offs. I find that really valuable. And actually your, your blog post really reminded me 
in that way of some of the more classic, what I think of as the more classical pattern books, like the Ganga Four or other things, where, where it kind of gives the reader an example of when this might be useful. Then you walk through one concrete use case. And at the end, you kind of broke it into, here are the benefits that if you find yourself looking for these kinds of benefits, the pattern might apply well to your scenario. Were you inspired by other kinds of pattern books or writing yet in your writing of this blog post? Uh, definitely. Um, I think one of my favorite things about programming is actually the part before it, like the architecting and seeing what tools are available to us and whatnot. And so it's kind of really um, played in nicely with that. Um, in particular, um, I feel, again, coming from Ruby Rails land, uh, Sandy Metz is someone that I really uh, look up to. Um, all of her videos, her books like Pooter and 99 Bottles, um, Pooter being practical object oriented Ruby. Oh, design in Ruby. I missed the D. Yeah. Um, so I, I highly recommend that. Um, it talks about duct typing and whatnot, but that might be a lot more o related. Um, yeah. Um, so other books. Um, I, I feel like there's, I always look around for blog posts more than books. Um, but Pooter is a main one for sure. Yeah, and I uh, so thank you, Michael, for bringing up some of those points. Um, I I don't mean to in any way disparage anyone who creates a library, right? That is not my intention, and I do agree that it's uh, it is one of the things that I've just seen as I've had more experience programming just in general in my career is that the answer to almost any question is usually now it depends, and. <laughs> And, and really, so like, and that's where this nuance that you're talking about comes from. And that's where we have the value in this, like just better understanding of when do I want a, uh, to add a new dependency? How hard is this for me to implement myself? And, and so what I love about this, like your blog post in particular, is you're kind of really breaking it down. Like this is, this is all that's really behind solving this problem in this way. And, and with that, it just becomes very easy to, uh, to then build on in our own applications. And, and what I like also is that we don't have to have other people have to learn all the, learn all the different libraries that we're using in our application just before they're able to contribute and understand the code of what's going on. Right. Yeah. And um, just really kind of continuing on with that thought that it's just another tool that we can consider. Um, we've had cases at the score where we've introduced a particular params module um, to fill some kind of void where we don't have a schema and we do want to kind of massage or validate incoming params. Um, but then as the project grows and as we refactor, um, we might kind of find some kind of um, not schema, but let's say a struct that we can pull out uh, and add to our business context, effectively removing that params module. Right, so these params modules are very lightweight um, and can be added and maybe later removed. And I think that's important too. It doesn't have to be um, the case where now our code base uses params modules, right? Um, it could be a time where you introduce one and remove it, right? Totally. I, I think that's a great uh, suggestion. And also one thing I really enjoyed about the pattern here is that you're, you're maybe just half a step away from making use of something like dialyzer because you have decided to make a little named module which encapsulates 
this kind of data that you're expecting. And if you just put a type spec around that, uh, it, it should become very easy to refactor. Like you said, you can remove some of these structs or you can decide to combine a few of them and you'll have a tool like Dialyzer to, to watch what the, what the shape of this data is as it gets as it flows through your system so that it can help you to catch the little odd edge cases here or there. Um, and, and I really have been, that's one of the things I've enjoyed about being in the Elixir community is just that idea of having a little bit of type safety or, or kind of opting into some type safety. And I think this is a great example of where, like you said, if, if there's some data that's coming in that doesn't quite fit one of your existing concepts in your application, you can decide to model it just as something that's part of the web layer. It has a name, it can have types. And later, if you do have a concept that matches very closely to this, then you can choose to remove the, um, the small one. And that refactor is very cheap for you to do as a team. Right. And kind of just building on that, I feel like refactoring is super important. It's super important to be comfortable uh, enough to refactor code and even to just experiment as well. Um, something we do a lot of at the score is just a lot of experimentation. So we'll be at point A and we'll see what point B could look like, right? Um, I'll, I'll often kind of uh, experiment with a change and then say, ah, I don't quite like that and throw it away. And uh, I think that's really helpful. Um, with this whole concept of prams modules because um, anyone can just quickly try it out and see how it looks, right? This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume, you spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs. And this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com elixir. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. Another uh, point I, I liked that you were making is uh, where this code belongs. And because, and we've kind of already touched on that in some of this discussion, is that you, we do have these kind of separation of concerns, right? These layers where at, at this entry point where this request has come in at my controller, that is my web layer, where I'm dealing with web concerns, with web params, where a string, uh, you know, a number might be represented as a string and I need to be aware of that. And then you have like your deeper, like Phoenix contexts, your business logic, your core system. And there you, like I like to have the idea where my inputs are all validated and cleaned and everything so that nothing messy uh, gets down, like web specific stuff gets down into my business logic. So I don't have to like worry about it there. It's like, oh, is a Boolean represented as a one or a true or a string? You know, it's like, no, it's all been, it's all clean. And, and so what I like about this though, is like talking about, so these param modules, you kind of talk about where they fit and where they don't fit. So uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more specifically about that. Yeah. Um, and I think, I don't know, 
it might have been Phoenix 1.4 where um, the web layer got split out into its own top level. Um, I feel like that kind of really set things off in terms of my mind um, as to um, how to split a repo up and really kind of hit home the point that um, web is one possible interface for your application. Um, so talking about the params modules, when you get a set of params at that point, it's still very much web layer logic. Um, and especially if what you end up passing along into your contexts uh, is that data massaged, um, all of those params and the concepts of them um, should kind of stay out of your business logic. Um, so for that reason, um, I uh, chose to kind of introduce that as like a first-class citizen within the web namespace. Um, and then uh, separately, um, I actually talk about this within the blog post itself, uh, and it's regarding how Prams modules really fit within Phoenix, like the web part of things. Um, so you could check that out, uh, but basically it'll follow the same um, naming conventions. Um, and you could also add an entry within your um, My App um, module, that top level module, um, to kind of, um, so you can use, um, you can use my app. It's, it's kind of hard to talk about code over audio, but um, how you can um, like use my app and then specify uh, like the params um, atom instead of like a view or a controller when you're actually defining a params module. So it kind of uh, fits in nicely to Phoenix itself. Yeah, thank you for kind of clarifying that. And one of the things I think I, I hear a lot about in the Elixir community, especially for people who are newer and coming into the uh, community and learning, is, is where do I put my code? Is like a common question. Like just trying to understand where does everything go? How do I arrange it? Because like with uh, like something like with Rails, it's a very opinionated framework. Uh, so you, you certain things you really should put in some places and some things you really, you can choose on how to arrange it. And, you know, so it, there's a little bit more structure where with Elixir, you know, it's more, there's some defined structure, like, well, controllers go over here. And, but like when people are talking about business logic and just like, how do I know how to arrange my code? I'm just curious, like we've talked about some of that here and just like, you know, keeping web specific things in the web layer and business specific things in the business layer. I'm just curious if you're, uh, if you have any thoughts on how you approach just in the general sense, not necessarily with params, but just in the general sense of how you arrange your code and just kind of where you think about how, how you think about where something goes or, you know, kind of the heuristic perhaps that you use in that. Yeah. So um, that's still something that we're experimenting a lot with. Um, there's a like like you said, um, it's all just modules and functions <laughs> with with functional programming. So um, we we experiment frequently with different structures. Um, one such structure is um, having a separate top level um, namespace for all schemas, um, and the other one um, is having um, like grouping schemas within certain contexts. Uh, so I don't have, I think it goes back to the whole, uh, it depends answer, <laughs> but, um, yeah, definitely. Um, 
the the way we're at right now is if uh, the point we're at right now is if you have some sort of um, new um, context, I guess um, that and it makes sense to pull out um, a separate kind of module for that, then do so. If you're working on like a totally new functionality that you foresee could potentially get big without trying to future proof your code too much, um, you can pull out a context. Um, but besides that, just a lot of experimentation, experimenting with uh, service modules, and um, I guess a lot of other things that get carried over from Rails while not trying to um, use uh, object-oriented programming within Functional, which is something that we definitely need to be cognizant of. Yeah, but um, on that note, there's, um, that, there's this good post from way back in Rails land that I read it's something like um, seven patterns to slim your fat active record models, something like that. I'm sure a lot of people have read that one. Um, there's a similar-ish one from ThoughtBot um, for Phoenix and Elixir. Um, I, we could try and dig that one up, but uh, that kind of has a lot of uh, similar type of thoughts with uh, query modules and whatnot to um, not to kind of blow any particular module too much. And so maybe that's a good point or heuristic um, to continue with where you just don't want a particular module to get too big. And I don't think you can count just based on number of lines per se, um, because if a module has a lot of uh, comments and examples and whatnot, it'll blow up. Um, but just like hard, um, like function count, things like that. Um, if it starts to get too big, then maybe there is something else hiding in there that can kind of get pulled out. I appreciated your comment there on um, on not counting numbers of lines. I, there's sometimes that there's one problem that just has a lot of edge cases, or maybe it has uh, several steps, but sometimes it can be useful to think of it as all one thing and to, to keep it all together in one module. Um, I, I, I personally don't really mind uh, long modules in terms of number of lines, as long as there is one cohesive description you can give of it. If you can, if you can sum it up in a one-liner, you're not using things like and or or to dis in that description. Um, then a lot of times, I I find that kind of code to to be very satisfying and and leave one whole problem space kind of tucked in a corner. I actually um, uh, referring back to Sandy Metz, who you already mentioned, Kuba. Uh, I really liked always her her description of an omega mess where it's okay to have a, a messy piece of code as long as it's tucked in a corner. If it's, if it's right in the center of your system and everyone has to deal with it, probably it, it's a place where um, finding another way to represent the problem is very important to the overall healthier system. But if, uh, if there's something that's a little bit messy and it only matters just over on one edge of your system somewhere that there's there's maybe only one or two other places in your code that interact with that thing, then, you know, then that's great. Uh, and, and it can, it can be fine, especially I find in a, in a functional language, because uh, if I, if I call that thing, not for side effect purposes, but just to get back an answer, then that's, it can have a whole lot of logic in it. And my usage of it is still very simple. And the way, uh, my ability to refactor it is still very high because I can always pull things out as long as it still returns me the right answer at the end. Totally. So it's like when talking about modules, it's not like 
how many lines of code is too much is how many concepts are too many, right? I feel like we should be counting the number of concepts instead of the number of lines per se. That's yeah. cool. I like that. And I, I think Michael, you kind of touched on that when you're talking like, like if I could, you know, write the documentation that is the summary of this module, what is its function? It's like, that's kind of where you start to identify what are the concepts here? What is its responsibility? Yeah, that's great. I like that a lot. Yeah. And I, I think maybe one thing that's important to note here is that um, in the same way that this can be a difficult thing to, to tackle in code, sometimes even just writing the description is also really difficult. And uh, it's natural to, when you're trying to describe something to somebody, a lot of times you try to give a summary thought and then you try to dive into details. And so sometimes my, my way of describing this module might sound really simple, but the very next um, response from someone else on my team is, well, yeah, it's only doing login, but it's dealing with the fact that emails are unique and that passwords are hashed. <laughs> and, and so their description has the word and, but mine didn't. Right. And, um, and, and I don't think this is an area where there's like clear lines that we can all follow, but, but I think we need to, as a, you know, on our teams, we decide what level of abstraction we're, we're going to use when talking about this piece of code and that piece of code. And, and when you deliberately make a choice as a team to say, oh, we are going to wrap up um, this whole set of modules into a single top level namespace. And most of the time, the system only cares about this interface kind of at the top level. That can be a really powerful thing to do as long as the team buys into it. And, um, and, and you're getting a little bit back now to like human language problems and human uh, emotional problems, maybe <laughs> with some of those kinds of debates. It's, it's often not, uh, not too clear cut, but, um, but a great way I think to, to work around those problems is just what Kuba mentioned earlier around experimentation. So I loved hearing about your team uh, trying out lots of new things and, uh, and being willing to experiment to see what your thoughts are. Uh, around a, a potential pattern that you're that you're thinking about using in your code base, that's a great way to let the team get to a point where they all feel confident that that oh, we do like this abstraction, and and we're okay to all talk about it with this level of of abstraction in mind, knowing that there's more details, but that we're all okay to just call it login or just to call it strong auth or, you know, using some of the examples from your blog post. I am curious, Kuba, could you tell us just a little bit about the, the team of people that you're working with? Yeah, for sure. Um, so at the score in general, in terms of developers, I would guess that we have 40, 50 or so. Um, and right now I'm on a team of roughly five or so. Um, and um, uh, a bunch of us have been here for over a year or two. Um, myself, I've been at the score for four years um, this month. Um, and uh, actually, most of us are, other than the client guys, um, most of us are coming from Railsland. Um, so we're all very kind of open to trying different things um, and also kind of really care about the code. And I think those two things are what's important on uh, being able to like successfully run through an experiment um, uh, experimental refactor. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like the, the size and dynamic of the team. I'm curious, uh, like you, you mentioned that I, I wonder if you can share any wisdom here because there are people who have 
existing projects. Uh, maybe it's maybe it's uh, Python or PHP or Rails or Java or something, but they have an existing product and they say, wow, I, I've been hearing this awesome stuff about Elixir and Phoenix and I want we want to start moving in that direction. I'm just curious, like what are any lessons or kind of what was your experience like just in taking, you know, uh, moving to this new platform? How did you do that? Was that like, did you stop everything and rewrite or was it like staged and just kind of like, can you speak to that at all? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, convincing a lot of people of a rewrite is definitely a tricky thing to do. Um, even it should even be a tricky thing to do for yourself, right? Cause uh, it's rewrite. It's not always, uh, the best option, but, um, we were in a kind of the perfect situation for our rails, um, team trying to get into the Phoenix space where, um, we want to support, um, public and private chats within our, the score app. Um, so chat, you think Phoenix, right? Um, so that was kind of like the, the perfect testing ground for us. Um, and so after we successfully released that, it kind of just really blew up. And um, now for basically all Greenfield apps, um, we'll um, set them up with um, Phoenix. Um, it's not necessarily um, the tool that has to be used in every case. Um, for example, if we just have some sort of internal tool, um, Rails would do just fine. Um, but I think it's important that we do kind of keep pushing on with Phoenix for all of these apps, um, especially to kind of get all developers ramped up on it, right? So even if it is a simple tool and we could really crank it out in Rails, um, if it might take a week or two more um, from the like slight more explicitness that um, Phoenix and Ecto and whatnot bring, I think it's definitely important to kind of get everyone ramped up on it. Um, we are going back to it after um, we released the chat app. Now we're using it for everything. Um, we even have a, a betting offering um, that the score is going to be getting into um, sometime mid mid 2019. So coming up um, and a lot of that work is also being done in Elixir and Phoenix. So now I, I think at this point, um, almost everyone at the score has worked with Phoenix. That's cool. I'm curious, like, um, just what has the other developers kind of reception of it been? Have they been open to it? Have they been like, wow, this is exciting? Or like, man, why are you guys doing this? I'm going to go somewhere else where I can do just Rails. You know, <laughs> what's, the, what's that in, uh, adoption been like? Yeah, uh, I think it's actually been a really great. Um, personally, I'm, I'm hesitant on any new thing. Um, not because I don't like new things, just because I want to make sure it's what is needed. It's what we need. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's been great, especially coming from uh, Rails like most of the developers have been. Um, it's really nice because there's a lot of things that we don't really talk about anymore, like performance. Um, <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's, it's been great from that standpoint. It's never fun to kind of uh, have to deal with that. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it looks so similar. People might not have even noticed. <laughs> Yeah, and, and also like um, we're, we're like the score has been hiring. We always are. And now we're just bringing in people who have worked with Elixir and Phoenix. So um, having their experience also really helps level up like people who are just trying it out right now at the score. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like if I could just kind of distill out of there, I think a part of that transition was 
you identified a new problem that the business was facing, which was we, we want a new feature that is like real-time chat and, you know, with different kinds of public private channels. And we know this tool over here can do this well. And then I'm sure you did some prototypes and, and then it was like, okay, well we can roll out just that piece. And that new feature can be kind of live outside of the rails app and as like a way of starting a transition. Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, our VP of engineering, he's super open to new technology. Um, he gets as a, he is a developer. Um, so he, he gets excited about technology like everyone else. So right now we're um, like everything's in Kubernetes as well. And we're trying out Elixir and Phoenix all over the place. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think going through the right steps is important and also just kind of being aware of what's around in terms of tech and not being afraid to try it out. Very cool. Well, I think that's a great place to kind of wrap that. Um, I was wondering, is there anything else you want to mention up, mention or bring up uh, at this point? Um, I don't think that there's anything else really to, uh, that I want to bring up. Just yeah, make sure to check out that um, blog post for a more kind of thorough overview on params um, and to be cognizant of the, um, the kind of abstractions and patterns that are used especially in functional programming where everything is just a lot more loose and explicit. Right. Great. All right. Well, let's transition to picks. Michael, uh, do you have one that you can share? Sure. Um, so this, this whole discussion, you know, we, we've been talking, uh, th this whole thing started with the blog post that very much lays out a pattern. And I've heard some, um, some commentary in the Elixir community about that functional programming languages are so simple. It's just data and functions and we don't need any patterns. Um, and I, I can see an argument there, but, um, but it doesn't feel that way to me so far. So far, my experience is that uh, we're still solving difficult problems. The, the, the real complexity of our applications hasn't gone away. We have a different set of tools to address it. And, and so I really enjoy these kinds of discussions. Um, and another author who I very, like, very much like to read, who's, who I think does a great job of laying out um, these kinds of issues is Fred Ebert, who was on the show a little while ago. I wasn't around for that one, still kicking myself for that. But I'll link to one specific blog, blog post that I really love from him. It's called, It's About the Guarantees. And it talks about um, a kind of a common mistake that people who are learning about supervisors they'll want to reach for a something like an exponential backoff loop in their supervision tree. And, um, and Fred does a great job of, of laying out how that might not be the doing that inside of a, in your main supervision tree may not be the best idea. And here's some of the problems that it introduces. And he even gives some suggestions of other ways to solve that kind of problem. And, uh, for me, this kind of thing is extremely powerful. It's great for me to, be able to not to have more levels of abstraction that I can reach for when trying to solve problems in my systems other than just saying, oh, well, how do I turn it into data and functions? Um, and so being able to talk about things like supervisors, gen servers, managers, um, these are all really great patterns. And, and I think things like from the Phoenix community of controllers is another great example of where having some standard patterns actually benefits us as a community because people coming on to Kuba's team who do have some Phoenix experience, they have uh, a bunch of knowledge that transfers very cleanly. And anyone who has experience in OTP also will have some things that, um, that transfer. And 
And so I'm a big fan of, of this kind of pattern discussion, whether you call it a pattern or not, not, not a super big issue for me, but, um, but I think these kinds of trying to wrap up a common use case and a common solution for that use case it is a big win in my opinion. So everyone should go read a little bit of Fred. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Cause I, I love the idea that, you know, that whole idea of the discussion of patterns where, you know, Phoenix context, that is a pattern. It's a pattern of how you're building modules and how you're naming them and how you're structuring them and how you have sub modules. And you know, like that is, that's a pattern. And so there are lots of patterns that we talk about that we that we do. I have patterns that I use in my applications about how I talk to external services, patterns for how uh, I abstract, uh, how I um, abstract testing interfaces, like for mocking. Yeah. So I totally agree. Um, there are patterns and they are worth talking about and they don't necessarily map to a library either. It's just, how do I organize my code? All right. Well, I was going to share mine, uh, which is, Recently, the Erlang OTP 22 uh, release highlights came out. And so I was just going to, I think it's worth being aware that, hey, there's a new Erlang release. I would wait for it to come out with official Elixir kind of pairing. But it's just kind of neat to know that it's here and some of the highlights in it. In particular, there are a few that I thought were beneficial to Elixir. Some of them were Erlang specific uh, language changes. But one of them is like uh, writing concurrency, write concurrency in ordered sets. They now have an intelligent algorithm that makes writing to an ordered set ETS table up to five times faster when there's high contention environments. So that's awesome. Another one is just interesting is like when you have a cluster of nodes and, and you have really large data messages like, you know, like 500 megabyte, like one gig style messages. Traditionally, uh, those messages would go out across, you know, EPMD or whatever the distribution communication mechanism is to the other node and it would block. So no other messages were going until that large message went, which would, you know, create a large uh, pause on any other messages and, and what's going on. And so they're saying they, they were able to break it up. So this one large message, they break it up into many smaller messages so they can uh, continue to flow all the other messages that are going on in the system across there too. So you're seeing a, a like their worst case scenario went from sending this large message causing a 50 second delay to the other messages even getting across to a 0.4 second delay. So it's like a 99% improvement. So I don't know that many of us have such large messages going across, but those are the kinds of things that they're continuing to work on on the Erlang OTP platform. It is a living, breathing, improving thing. And, and, and I'm, I'm grateful for all the work they do. So you can check that out. Big plus one. I, and also, uh, can I just give like the Jose uh, Hart uh, emoji reaction to that entire blog post and basically everything that Lucas Larson has ever published? And uh, if you want to know more about that kind of stuff, he also gives some really amazing conference talks if you, su if you search for Lucas Larson's name. Awesome. Great. And Kuba, do you have something? Yeah, uh, just one thing. I just wanted to quickly mention um, a good friend of mine, Jonathan Sutherland, um, released a simple blogging platform called prosful.com. And that's actually built in Phoenix. Um, 
it's he's doing his own thing and um it's just uh, another one of those entrepreneurial startup stories kind of uh, shares everything that he does on indie hackers and uh it's um free to kind of try out so i highly recommend that everyone does that um that's where i wrote my blog post and uh it's it's nice uh, against the fight with medium who uh tends to uh bloat their interfaces and whatnot <laughs> and uh could be another successful um phoenix story as well Awesome. All right, Kuba. Well, thank you so much for coming on. If people would like to get in touch with you, follow you, or have more questions, where would you direct them? Um, Twitter is probably the easiest. Uh, just Kuba Sub, K-U-B-A-S-U-B. Um, I'm also on GitHub at the same, and LinkedIn maybe at the same, but <laughs> we'll let, let's just stick with the Twitter, I guess. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and. All right, well, that's it for today. We hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.